hearts and open our hearts to hear what you have for each one of us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, Lord Christ. So this morning, we are going to get started with a story about mice, and we're going to start with a quote from Frederick Buechner. So the quote I came across when I was reading some of the articles that were put out after his passing earlier this week. The mice we're interested in are a group of mice that were a part of a 2013 epigenetic study that asked the question, can fear be inherited? So they ran the test, like they run many behavioral tests, put a bunch of male mice into a little box, filled it with acetophenone, which is a chemical that smells a little bit like cherries and almonds, and they run some shocks through the bottom of the box. They do this enough times so that then when the mice go in the box and smell the chemical, they have the like shuddering fear response just at the smell, no shock, right? So they do this to the mice, breed the mice, put their first generation offspring in boxes, right? Pipe in the smell, no shocks. And what happens? Same shuddering fear response at first exposure to just the smell. Interesting enough, what about the second generation? Grandkids into the box, smell into the box. Same thing, fear response at the smell and not the shock. Now this is a scientific study that proves something that we all know from our lives, our communities, our families, and even families we read about in the Bible, right? Which is we inherit a whole lot more than just height and eye color from our families. We tend to inherit some fear. We tend to inherit some pain. And when we see this play out in scripture, in our heroes of the faith, it can be a little bit unsettling, right? Because we like our heroes to be heroes. And this is where I love a sort of Frederick Buechner quote. I want you to like tuck in your pocket and just carry with you if you get a little nervous as we go through today, which is when he was asked why in his fiction he writes about these really messy, flawed, sinful people. He said, I write about people with feet of clay because they're the only kind of people I've met, including myself. So today, my hope is that we can see just how incredibly powerfully God can work in our lives, even with our messy clay feet. So let's get started. And we're going to look at Joseph and his family, and we're also going to tug back on Canon Ross's sermon from earlier last week. So we're going to jump into Genesis 37. So in Genesis 37, we meet Joseph, right? And Joseph in the Hebrew tradition gets referred to as an immature youth. Delightful, right? He's also just kind of a spoiled 17-year-old acting like a spoiled 17-year-old, right? So we meet him being a tattletale, giving a bad report about his brothers, and being given this coat of many colors. So just read expensive and showing authority and power, right? And so what this fuels is a deep sense of family division and tension between him and his brothers. Now, this family division based in favoritism, can you smell the cherries and almonds, right? Like this is the family inheritance, because Joseph is the favorite of his father, Jacob, because he's the eldest son of the favorite wife, Rachel. 
And then as we learned last week, he was the favorite of his mother while his brother Esau was the favorite of their father Isaac. Jacob knew how painful and divisive favoritism was, and yet he had his favorite. The pattern continued, right? And so this is what we're going to see play out. So into this seriously charged family tension, Joseph steps up and says, I've had two dreams where everyone bows down and worships me, right? To which his brothers, it says, hated him even more. And then his father even rebuked him. So even his father said, man, this was too much. You shouldn't have done it. So in his hatred, the brothers go, he's sold into slavery. And this starts knocking down the dominoes to get us to where we are today. I get all the help and all the support, and I love it. All right, so we have Joseph, right? And what we're doing is we're starting to knock down the dominoes to get to where we are today, okay? So what's happened here is Joseph gets sold into slavery into the house of Potiphar. He gets falsely accused of sexual assault, thrown into prison, interprets other people's dreams. They get out of prison, waits, interprets dreams, gets himself out of prison, So dreams got him in, dreams got him out. And now he is in this place of huge authority and power in Egypt. So we have to ask ourselves for a second, what has he been thinking about this whole time? Has he been thinking about these brothers? Has he been wondering about his father? How is he understanding and metabolizing this story that happened to him? that took him from in a pit in slavery to being a ruler in Egypt. And what about the brothers? What were they doing for 20 years? And what the brothers were doing for 20 years was living, having families, farming, and maintaining the lie and the fear that their brother Joseph was dead. All the while watching their father grieve the loss all the while. And then after 20 years, they're out of food. There's a famine. They have to go to Egypt and ask for food from none other than Joseph, completely unbeknownst to them. So we have this very powerful, inevitable family reunion. So the brothers don't actually make one, but two visits to Joseph. In both the visits, Joseph falsely accuses them of crimes, throws them in prison, lavishes them with gifts, lavishes them with food, and weeps. And the context of the story itself gives us very little to understand why he does this or what his motives are. So this leads to some tricky interpretation. One interpretation tries to push and say, everything Joseph does is ethically very good. He is the man in the white hat. He is testing his brothers all as well. But to push the line that far, we really have to ask a lot from the text that isn't there because it forces us to kind of hide his clay feet. And we don't have to do this, right? So Jay Gordon McConville sums it up really well in one of his articles where he says that Joseph is not driven by clear purpose of good or evil, 
But what we're seeing here is a human man working out a private pain in a public context. So we get conflict internally and conflict externally. The other way to interpret it is for me as a counselor, when I read this, and when I engage those counseling trained parts of my brain, everything that Joseph does makes complete sense, right? It makes complete sense because we all have these things called unconscious emotional responses and defenses. These are things like denial, repression, compartmentalization, reaction formation. We all have them and you've all felt them, right? You know, they're active in those moments where there might be something from your past that you're like, I'm over it. It's fine. I don't even care. And then you see the person, you hear the song, you see the picture, and it hits you again. And where you thought you were okay, you're not okay, right? Because the body just kind of tucks it down a little bit. And so what I think we see here partially is Joseph going through what is a very painful healing process when we have to come back into contact with memories and fears that have been stored away. And when we do that, we get flooded with emotions and with memories. And we kind of act in these ways that are not logical, but deeply emotional, deeply protective, and all part of the healing process. And this is where Joseph is in our story. Because I don't think right off the bat, he knew what he wanted from these brothers. I don't think he knew what to do until he was able to lift up his eyes. He was able to see them for who they are now and acknowledge God's powerful presence in the most painful parts of his life. So the brothers visit. The brothers visit and Joseph immediately clocks him. He knows who they are. The brothers do not recognize Joseph, which of course they don't. He's about a 37 to 40 year old Egyptian aristocrat in power, not a 17 year old farmer in a pit. Completely different. They probably thought he was dead and they weren't looking. But he got him. He saw him. And the first thing he does is he remembers his dreams and then he accuses them of being spies. He accuses them of being spies, which carries the penalty of death. So upon first viewing of these long lost brothers, he threatens their lives and wants to see Benjamin. This is his sole focus, right? Even to the point that as they're sort of hashing out the deal, that, all right, one of you stays, the rest of you go, bring back this mystery brother, and then I'll believe you that you're honest. He hears them talking in their own language, saying, this is judgment. This is judgment because of what we did to Joseph. And he has to take himself away and weep because he was overwhelmed, because he thought they didn't care, because he thought they were proud of what they did. We don't know. But as much as that broke him, it did not cut through enough for him to say, it's me, just kidding. I know you're not spies. I won't threaten your lives, right? So his clay feet are this moment where out of fear, when he smells the chemicals again, he falsely accuses and imprisons his brother, which are the exact same things that happened to him. So he knew how bad they hurt. He knew, but it still happened. So then the brothers go, and he's left waiting about a year. Now, think of this from Joseph's perspective, though. 
all the brothers come but Benjamin. What will be his first thought? Benjamin was the heir apparent of favoritism and his only full brother of the favorite mother. So his first thought when Benjamin is not there is going to be, oh, he's dead. They killed him, right? They did the same thing to my little nine-year-old brother that they did to me. And this is likely a fear he has been carrying with him for a long time about his little brother. And so he latches onto that fear above kind of anything else because he wants to know, but then he has to wait a year and Simeon hangs out in prison for a year because Jacob, dad, cannot relinquish Benjamin. One of the brothers even offers two of his sons as collateral. Reuben's like, I'll put him up, we'll go. And dad's like, no way, can't do it. Maybe he doesn't trust the brothers. Maybe he's too scared, but he will not part with his favorite for a year until finally Judah says, dad, we are out of food and we've got to go. So they pack it up. They bring back the extra money that Joseph gave them because they are freaked out at what's going to happen. They go back down. They travel like 175, 200 miles. They travel from here to New York, right? And show up. It says they are terrified, which of course they are, right? They even go to the steward and they're like, we brought back the extra money. We didn't steal the food. And the steward's like, guys, relax. It was a gift. You're fine. Ironically in the story, this might be the same steward who sets up Benjamin later. So he's kind of a fun, a fun character in this whole thing. Um, so they show up for the second time. And this is one of two sort of tectonic shifts we have in our story, right? So they show up with Benjamin. They come into presence with Joseph. Joseph asks about their father. And then it says he lifts up his eyes and he sees Benjamin, his mother's son. This is the first time family language is used in reference to Joseph and these brothers. He sees his mother's son. He has to send everyone away and he has to go weep. He is so overwhelmed and consumed by whatever gets him in this moment. Relief, fear, grief of lost time. He is completely undone but not enough, right? So in our sermon series this summer, this lifting up of the eyes, right? This idiom works as a a floodlight to say whatever they're seeing is the most important thing. This is the most important thing, right? Benjamin was the most important thing for Joseph to see, to see that he was alive. But even seeing that was not enough to make him feel safe enough to say, it's me, guys. Don't worry about it. It wasn't enough to break through to either make him trust them, trust that Benjamin was safe, not enough to maybe relinquish the power he had over them. It didn't quite cut through. And then you can almost as you're reading and they're feasting, Joseph gives Benjamin a five times portion at the feast because a little favoritism never hurt anybody, right? And so they're feasting and you can like, Fear the chem- feel the chemical seep in, right? You can smell the cherries and almonds because Joseph can't do it. Grabs the steward and says, we have to set up Benjamin to look like he stole the cup. Why? Why did he do this? And for me, what I see is this incredible moment 
where in fear, Joseph essentially takes his brothers, puts their face to the fire and makes them relive their past. And he says to them, are you going to do it again? Are you going to go back to dad with another bloody cloak? Are you going to kill another brother? Are you going to do it again? Balls in your court. He wants guarantees of safety, probably for himself, but especially for Benjamin. And this is the final like pin to drop in our story, right? Because in the face of this huge moment, Judah steps up. Judah steps up and says, you can't do this. You can't do it. You can't take Benjamin because dad will die. Benjamin is his beloved. He is his favorite. And if you kill him, that's it. So take me instead. Take me instead. Remember, this is the biggest flip we can get because Judah, he put Joseph into slavery because he was the favorite. And now he is willing to sacrifice his life because Benjamin's the favorite. Completely turned around. It's good in Mark 2 in this moment of self-sacrifice. Jesus, the Messiah, comes from the line of Judah, this Judah, this brother who is standing in front of an Egyptian ruler who he has no idea who he is and saying, take me instead. And that cracks it open. This is the moment where finally something shifts in Joseph and he feels safe enough able enough, healed enough to send everybody out to weep in public in front of his family and then to say, I'm Joseph, it's me. To which it says, the brothers are dismayed. And that is just so understandable. (laughs) I mean, can you, like, you can feel the gears like grinding in these brothers' heads, right? Because this guy has not been great to them. He hasn't. So there would be this like, oh my gosh, like you're Joseph. We thought you were dead. And you've been doing this to us this whole time. You can feel it like shifting for them. And then Joseph says to them, right? His incredible summarizing speech of do not be dismayed. Do not be dismayed, right? Because what you intended for evil God intended for good. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. You sold me here, but God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And he fell upon Benjamin's neck and wept and kissed all his brothers. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And this is a direct reference all the way back to chapter 37, where we were, where it says the brothers could not speak peaceably together. They could not have shalom together, and now they can communicate. It's also a reference right back to our sermon last week that Canon Ross gave us, where we saw Esau running to Jacob. He embraced him, he wept, right? And he kissed him and they talked together. The family has done this before but the pattern wasn't healed. The reaction was not healed until this moment, until this 
very moment where they were finally able to find freedom, which is why I really love um, Pierre Bertou in some of his writing about this. He says, what we see here is a double miracle. I love that. We see a double miracle. It's the reconciliation of a family torn by dissent, feuds, and rivalry, and the survival of a remnant people threatened by destitution and destruction. It's a double miracle, which is also a fulfillment of God's covenant with Jacob, because then the people are brought down into Egypt. But then, right, what also happens, which kickstarts our 400 years, right, of captivity. But this is the fulfillment of the covenant. A family burdened and divided by favoritism, fear, and regret is finally able to have healing because in God's time, Joseph could lift up his eyes and find healing and see his brothers. So that was that family, but what does all this mean for us, right? Where does this hit us? And I think as much as this is a specific story about one family seeing how God is working in their lives, you can't help but hear the New Testament echoing of Romans 8 in your ears, right? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So what Romans and Joseph give us is hope, right? They give us hope. That adversity does not automatically signal the absence of God's presence. That in the midst of some of the most hopeless and helpless and confusing times, God is not gone. He is not overwhelmed. He is not confused. He is present. He is present with you. He is present with your families. He is present with your communities. And then we can choose like Joseph to see, to maybe look at the things that have felt too too overwhelming or too scary or too messy to look at. And we can also find that maybe what was intended for evil God intended for good. Now, I want to be very gentle and careful here to note that this does not mean we minimize the pain of evil. We do not minimize the hurt that we all go through. We do not say that this should be quick and simple and you just need to get over it. That is not what's happening here. This is to give hope and acknowledgement that the healing process is messy. Look at everything Joseph just went through. Look at what that family did. But God was in the midst of it. Even when their clay feet got all in the way. So we can have hope to engage in the mess, to engage in the healing, but not just for ourselves, right? Joseph didn't need to heal just so he could feel better, right? The healing of Joseph meant the healing of his family, and the healing of the nation of Israel. We and our lives have blocks. There, I guarantee you, are people and groups and situations where you are not able to have shalom, to communicate and to engage because we hold and we carry 
anger and resentment and confusion that we've just kind of tucked away somewhere in our bodies. And that's where there's hope for healing, not only for ourselves, but so we can reach out and have communion and move, as Henry Nouwen writes, from hostility to hospitality, which is the most important shift for spiritual formation, to talk with one another through our healing and through what was most painful. So let's close our eyes and close out today. Dear Heavenly Father, may you just give us a moment to sit and to breathe. May your spirit show us where you are waiting to be declared victorious. Those spaces in our lives that feel a little too messy, a little too scary, and we don't want to lift up our eyes. May you sit with us, may you hold us and help us to lift up.